last week. So uh, we're going to spend the discussion today trying to give you opportunities to use that information in terms of how might it actually be useful knowledge. Now we, yeah, you had to learn it because you're going to have an exam on it, but really the idea is that this is stuff that will be useful in your careers to know. So um, there was a, a slide in the self-study, right? You recognize this? Yeah? So here, there were two study questions on this. The first one was to notice that, uh, the pointer is not even going to work on this at all. Uh, so really, this was not so important. The emphasis was the pie chart. Do you want a pointer? Oh, do you have one? That was, actually, I was like, I left my office without mine last night, and I didn't want to risk being late for class to go get mine from my office, so thank you. Do, please do not let me forget. <laughs> it will not be intentional. But in fact, this one's very similar to my pointer, so. <laughs> All right, so, uh, oh, but it's red, not green. Okay, I'll know it's not mine. So here's that pie chart. And when you look at the distribution of the target sequences, now what do we mean by the target sequences? The sequences of the microRNAs are the Right. So the target sequences on messenger RNA. Yes. And the what's the complex called that is being guided by this microRNA to the messenger RNA? What is that big complex called? Risk. Uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know, the messenger RNA is at risk of being, <laughs> whatever helps you to remember this. So um, here you see where they are, and the three prime untranslated region from this analysis was not a surprise. That sounds like a good place to be. And the coding sequence was not a surprise either. Yeah, you clamp down a big complex on that and ribosomes are just not able to translate that RNA. And the three prime untranslated region makes sense because now you know that if it's translating, it's on a polysome. So in fact, it's not a linear RNA, it's a circular one. So you put something on the three prime untranslated and it's basically close to the beginning rather than far away. So these two make sense. Um, three prime untranslated region extension. Yeah, really? What? Yeah, you ever heard of that before you encountered this pie chart? So if you read the script notes, what's going on? How can you have a three prime untranslated region extension? consensus but so they recognize some of the time and some not so that's a natural thing that evolved and it has something to do with regulation of the expression of that but the other thing that can happen is that there are enhancers placed all over the place in the genome and there are places in the genomes of mammals where you have 
genes quite close together uh, and reading on opposite strands. So if you look at a genetic map for humans, you'll see that you may be going from the way we're reading it, left to right for certain genes, but underneath on the other strand in the intervals in between, there are genes going the other direction, using the other strand. They all have promoters. Well, promoters are unidirectional, right? But what about enhancers? Position independent. So enhancers can actually influence. So especially when you have gene clusters, you can have read through because an enhancer from another um, gene is actually uh, making the polymerase be less attentive to polyacides. That's probably the easiest way to say it. Of course, I use that language because we really don't understand the actual mechanisms by which it occurs. <laughs> so we have to say things like makes the polymerase less attentive. So, so these things really happen in an organism. And now you have these, these occurrences. Is that something you want that, that is in the best interest of an organism to allow to happen? Adding extra sequences at the end? Maybe not. So a message that's like that might be a good idea to target it. For, uh, for to keep it from translating. And then how about this? Was that surprising to you? Introns. Why on earth would you have, and that's what the question is about, why on earth would there exist in our genome microRNAs that target an intron? Did anybody get that? Target retrotransposon regions, other things in the intron, and regulate translation But, so, well, let's keep talking. Okay, so you've got it started. Let's keep talking. Benjamin, you were going to say something? I don't have anything to say about retrotransposons. Uh, yeah, we're going to keep going with it, though, because it, it extends to a wide breadth of possibilities. I was just going to say that, that sometimes splicing machinery fails and introns are maintained due to the mRNA. And when that happens, you don't really want to translate that mRNA because that's a waste of resources. You're almost certainly not going to have a functional protein come out of that. So it would make sense to attend to the translation of an mRNA that contains introns. Did it, did, when they talked about splicing, you did, you did learn about splicing. Oh, good, everybody. I know you did, but that means you remember. Okay, good. Uh, did they mention the fact that sometimes the spliceism fails? Yeah, probably not. So it's, the, it's one of the things I've picked up over the years is um, it's just it, probably because of time to mention it. So, yeah, it's a mistake. It's a complete mistake. Now, to me, when they came up with this, I have to confess, I was not surprised. Because as a postdoc and as a graduate student, these were the years where there was no genome, no human genome, no hope to get, in fact, actually, people would have told you if you were Craig Manner, you're, you're insane, if you think we're gonna be able to sequence the entire human genome. Because the technology was not there. So just to get, plus we've struggled to get a single gene. And I cloned a gene as a 
graduate student, that's how I got my PhD, and then I coined a gene as a postdoc, and that's how I got this job. And I did it from scratch, a gene no one even had any idea what it was like in both cases. And that means you work with cDNA libraries, which you make from cytoplasmic RNA. You don't ever make it from nuclear RNA. In fact, we take the cells and we treat it with a gentle, um, a gentle detergent like in NP40, not FIT40, or Triton X100, so that we only break open the plasma membrane and the nuclei stay intact and you pellet those nuclei and dump them. And I, I learned very quickly, don't even go near that pellet, just take the rest of the cytoplasm. And now, take the RNA from that and make your library. Because the spliced RNA is out there in the cytoplasm and what's in the nucleus is in the process of being spliced. And then you might end up with 80,000 base pairs to sequence and try and find the exons in that. Let nature do it for you and go out to the cytoplasm and find the perfectly spliced, ready to translate message. And I did that. Two libraries, one made by us and one made by a friend. 364 RNAs, and I got the gene, but only one was a completely spliced message. Boy, talk about a shock to me, because I learned in graduate school that the splices don't worked, right? <laughs> message was always spliced. 264, and only one was correctly spliced. Now, it turns out the gene I was after as a postdoc is highly regulated, <laughs> and it's partly regulated by microRNAs, which we didn't know at the time. So, you see, that can actually be a way to regulate the expression of a gene. Because I want you to when I, I wanted you to think even more deeply about that, so I'll tell you about my experience with it, and I can assure you it does happen. But I told you it happened with this particular gene, and it came in as a surprise, because I knew the woman who cloned the first cDNA ever, Lydia Villakomarov, cloned insulin cDNA. Every cDNA was perfectly spliced. And I, I had learned to do this from other people who were cloning genes. And we were the first ones to come up with such a bad situation. And we didn't understand what a go-mine we had when I realized what we were onto and didn't know it. Uh, but it was very, very unusual. So it isn't just every gene where the splices on the jump splice <coughs> Again, the script notes. What did the script notes on those point out to you? You can read them right now if you didn't realize they were there. What did the script notes point out about introns and the splicing mechanism? Gee, I hope I put it in there. <laughs> did I? Splice acceptors, the do a search splice acceptor, splice donor. Okay. Uh, genes with intra 
electrons that have imperfect um, splice cylinder acceptor polypyrimidine sites are more frequently missed by splice cylinders. That's right. So when they were talking about splicing, they didn't mention, I mean, they talked about the splice acceptor consensus and the splice donor consensus. And that pyrimidine stretch that has to be upstream of the splice acceptor. But they don't mention the fact, probably, again, it's a time thing. I'm not, I don't have anything to say about who taught that. They just, it's time. We only have a limited time. And I have an opportunity here to talk to you about it because I have to teach microRNA. So now, that's a property of the gene sequence. And if it's imperfect or perfect, what does the sequence of the splice donor and the splice acceptor do? How does that participate in splicing? The D1 and D2 bind to those specific sites. By base pairing. Well, if the site is absolutely consensus, well, the consensus is actually the, it's the, literally the complement of the U1 and the U2 small RNAs that are part of, that the heart of the splice is on. But that doesn't mean every message has that perfect complement. And the further away it gets from that, the less often that's recognized. And then you get that splice not made. Well, that is also part of our evolved genome. And some of these messages need to be gotten rid of. And so microRNA evolved to recognize it. What I'm trying to point out here that I hope you grasp is, this is not a general mechanism. MicroRNAs that recognize just any intron, that's not what they're talking about. MicroRNAs that recognize introns, which have evolved to have poor splice acceptor, splice donor. They also have evolved, the genome also evolved MicroRNAs that will recognize them so that when they get out into the cytoplasm as unspliced, they are not allowed to translate. So the microRNAs that recognize introns are tailored to our genome, tailored to the splice variations that are out there. And this gushiness in splicing is also a way to regulate um, protein function. You can fine tune it uh, rather than having to uh, regulate the promoter tightly, you can regulate how much of it is translated. And that's what many of these classes are about. This is translation and translation regulation. So um, the other thing that pops up out here is intergenic. And that has to do with these three prime translated extensions because they're intergenic. So maybe now that, uh, what would happen if a messenger RNA that's called read through. When the RNA polymerase misses the poly A and continues past the true termination, that's called read through. So on a read through messenger RNA, got intergenic sequences, what if it was translated? still there for the ribosome, right? 
thing with this three prime uh, extension of the untranslated region. It's still there. So the translating ribosome would have a stop codon and would terminate the translation. So the protein would be okay. The, um, the energetic sequences, they might have structure. That's right. And what if they had structure that was an iris? Then you could have from a promoter that was intended only to express a particular gene, have it read through into the energetic sequences and pick up another gene that might be going be um, translated off of a iris. And in this case, the RNA polymerase would go right through the promoter of that other gene and into its regular transcript. So what is what this pointed out to us, and that's not a high percentage, but what this pointed out to us is that in fact the RNA polymerase does miss the poly A site a reasonable amount of time. Enough times that it needs to be protected with microRNA. But it also, again, is like the introns. It's not like this is a mic, these are not microRNAs that could just detect any read-through. The genome evolved so that when those genes exist and they are the same genes that tend to read through every time, so microRNAs evolve to recognize them. And their target sequences are, are out there in the androgenics. So a normal message where the polymerase, RNA polymerase did recognize the poly A correctly, won't have this sequence and won't be repressed by the microRNA. So you get the protein you want to, but and not an additional protein. But these are Polyatels, wouldn't they more likely be degraded because they're not transmitted Yeah, and they have secondary structure. Well, I think the thing that happens is they read through the next gene. And so it's never it's going to have a poly A. And then you basically end up with a bisystronic message. And that bisystronic message then does have a poly A. But yeah, so they're they, genes that have this uh, read-through happening, but there's no downstream gene that's close enough for the RNA polymerase to pick it up. Those, I would suspect, though certainly studies haven't looked into that, are not included in the ones that have microRNAs that recognize them. Yeah, so it would, these would be genes you'd expect to be in gene clusters. And again, it's, it's what I'm talking about right now with this, the structure of things and how leaky they are, I'm not going to actually specifically ask you a question on an exam. In the discussion, we're trying to help you put together the bitter, bigger picture and realize that all the biological systems you've learned about here, nothing's absolute. When you start looking at real life, everything's leaky. In fact, one of the leakiest, less, the least leakiest system, two things. The fidelity of the DNA polymerase, oh yeah, better do that, so we replicate the genome directly. And the amino acyl tRNA synthesis. Two of the most faithful operations, enzymes, in cells, and you start going away from that and everything else is really sloppy.
but we take advantage of it. We create diversity and lots of function. We fine tune expression and get a complex organ like ourselves. Uh, sorry, complex <laughs> organism <laughs> like ourselves. So things are always wishy-washy, and it was widely ignored, and we didn't even used to teach that until we had to explain what microRNAs are doing, because microRNAs teach us just how squishy and wishy-washy things are, because we have to we we deal with it by having microRNAs that take care of repressing the expression of those. <laughs> Mistakes, mistakes that we need to let happen in order to create function that's useful. Any questions on this? So um, I'd like to see them, the next thing I'd like to see them do is take this analysis, if, if somebody can get the funding, and I think they will because this is turning out to be really important in understanding developmental changes in expression as well as, um, you know, when you want to take these, everybody heard of induced pluripotent stem cells, which is the future of a great deal of medicine, being able to recreate a whole organ rather than having to find a transplant donor and treat the person with in, uh, immune suppression the rest of their life. Take some of their own cells, make them into pluripotent stem cells, and then create them into, uh, to, to make them differentiate into the cell type you like. We realize that since microRNAs are a huge force in development of any organ, that we're gonna to have to understand them and how they regulate translation and expression in order to be able to successfully do this technology of pluripotent stem cells and organ regeneration. All right, so, um, where might this happen, and that's where I'd like to see them go next, which is to look at the distribution of the, these genes that are here. Where are they on the human chromosomes? I'm going to predict that almost none of them are on human chromosome 19. And furthermore, almost none of them are on human chromosome 17. And here's why. Human chromosome 19 and human chromosome 17 have almost no genes on them. They are very, very sparse in genes. It sticks out like a sore thumb. If you see um, the chromosomes of the human and you see bars that indicate where genes are, and um, those, in order to make it small enough, the bars have to be stacked on top of each other. So you, when there's a, a cluster of genes, you see a really tall bar. You ever seen one of those graphs? You, you probably will. You'll encounter it. So the bars are stacked up. So a tall bar means that there's a gene cluster there that's so close together, the bars have to overlap with each other. And, you know, chromosome one bristles with tall, so there's lots of gene clusters. So I'm going to predict a lot of these microRNAs are targeting things which are on chromosome one. But chromosome 19 and chromosome 17, single bars, spaced out, so far apart, very easy <coughs> to tell. You can count the genes on chromosome 19 and chromosome 17. So no gene clusters, unlikely that you'll have uh, things like have to worry about intergenic, because the RNA polymerase is gonna fall off. It's not meant to process that far. It's gonna fall off over a million base pairs. So does that help you um, 
so to get a feel for where, what this is all about, and certainly my opinion of where the next study should go. Uh, so here's that uh, building on your uh, microRNA. We use it as a technology. So what's the difference between the natural microRNA that we discovered regulating our expression and the technology that we use to knock down? One simple difference. If you want to knock down, you take a microRNA and do what? And you make it perfectly complementary to your target RNA. Are any of the microRNAs that occur naturally perfectly complementary to their true target? It's okay to say, I don't know, and then how about someone say, I'm not sure, and then tell me why you're not sure. Because I'm asking this question because this is a, a difficult thing to grasp and it's something that you might not have picked up from the self-study. So don't worry about saying something that will develop. Well, if you're asking if uh, any mRNAs are perfectly complementary to the sequences they target? Don't know, but what about most microRNAs then? Maybe let, let me ask the question another way. Are most microRNAs perfectly complementary? Well, I would think not, because they're both maintained in the genome, generation over generation, so they both have the capacity to mutate. So exact sequence homology between two mutating sequences is less likely, but theoretically possible. And that was not in the script notes. Excellent, Benjamin. <laughs> that is where I hope this discussion will go. You got there really fast. It's a genome. It's evolving. The microRNAs are on one gene hosting and the target genes are on another. And we do have spontaneous mutation, which is allowed because it gives us new opportunity to function. We have used it to our benefit over and over and over to develop the diverse, you know, the really diverse types of organs and systems we have within us. So, most microRNAs do not, are not perfectly complementary. And that allows them to work still, even when their target gene has had a incidental spontaneous mutation in their target sequence. But there's an, another thing that's going on. When the microRNA does not match the target sequence perfectly, what does risk do? the other one. Now, what does risk do when it binds 
What's its function? What is the outcome? It cleaves the message. Alright? Now, what is what tells it to cleave the message? And it's perfect. If the complement, if the guide RNA, the microRNA, is perfectly base paired with the target, that triggers risk cleaving and starting the degradation of the messenger RNA. Alright, but most microRNAs are not perfectly complementary. They have one to two to three base pair mismatch. When that occurs, what does risk do? That's correct. Did everyone hear that? <coughs> risk blocks translation. It simply holds on to that message indefinitely. And here's something we don't understand. Obviously, the outcome, if there's a perfect match, is degradation. And there are some microRNAs, it's the minority, but some microRNAs do perfectly match their target and they end up degrading the RNA. But most microRNAs are a one or two or three base pair mismatch with their target sequences. So then it hangs on to it and represses translation. We don't understand how, how it knows how long to hold on to it. We don't understand its ultimate fate. But we do know that under the right conditions for some genes, we can induce risk letting go of that RNA and allowing it to be translated. And that is what happens in development. So messenger RNAs, so it, and here to understand this, just so that Recall, you have an egg fertilized by a sperm. That egg has 100,000 on average ribosomes inside it, which is 10 times the normal level that a cell should have. There's good reason to do that. It also has 10 times as many of a lot of things. Because a successful fertilization requires cell division on a time scale for which there is no time to transcribe new message, there is no time to make new ribosomes, there is no time to do anything except make protein, make protein, make protein, and replicate the genome. So you now when, when I said this, did that bring to your mind those vivid pictures of fertilization and then the cells just divide like magic. Now that's time lapse, so it, it happens over a second time, and you get to the 16 cell. You have to get to the 16 cell stage without requiring ribosomes to be made. We don't know why that is, but we know that it is. So right after that, you need to get to the 64 cell stage. And in mammals, we do understand why that is. Because until it's at the, I believe it's, this, I think I'm getting this right, I'm not an embryologist for sure, but I believe that it's at the 64 cell stage that the embryo must implant 
and the uterine wall. And if it fails to do that, it's gonna, it, it won't live. It's not going to continue to develop. Of course, it needs to hook up to a bloodstream and a nutrient supply. So it has to get to the 64 very, very rapidly and get attached to the uterine wall. And the way that that is happening is because they have lots of message and lots of ribosomes, but they don't need all those proteins right at first. And it's important that many of the messenger RNAs be repressed until the 16 cell stage. And all of that is being orchestrated by microRNA. Risk is holding on to those, um, after the first division, risk is holding on to those messenger RNAs that should not be expressed until after the 16th cell division. And also to ones that don't get expressed until after the 64 cell stage. And something signals it to let go. We have no clue as to what that is. So I tell you about it, there's a future area you might be interested in exploring. Okay, so we use this technology though, and uh, we, it was part of your cell study, is using the technology. The key to us is we want the knockdown function. So in the knockdown technology, do we use perfectly matching? Or mismatching. I see some heads nodding, but how about saying it out loud? Perfectly matching or mismatching? Perfectly matching. Okay, so when we first found this technology, what uh, we didn't have a lot of tools, and so when we had actually this was discovered by accident, and we couldn't even tell you how it was working. But we knew that if you took a double-stranded, synthetically made RNA that had a two-base pair overhang, didn't work if it had four-base pair overhang, didn't work if it was blind. Man, isn't it incredible what just desperate people trying everything under the sun can stumble on? <laughs> because this technology was a good seven years ahead of the first discovery of what microRNAs, this whole apparatus. But empirically, they figured out what you had to have. And they, they, they knew they wanted to target a gene of a particular sequence, so the trick was to find out it had to be double-stranded and had to have just two base pair overhangs. Now, you introduce it with a transfection method, such as a lipid reagent, and that's going to go in. But transfection reagents deliver to the cytoplasm. So you're putting this molecule in the cytoplasm and asking risk to pick it up. Of course, you have to put a huge amount if you use this system. Because risk was not designed just to look around the cytoplasm for any old double-stranded two-base pair overhang RNA that happened to be around. Risk is part of a system that is used to having dicer and argonaut complex Flip that loop off. Now it's got this molecule. And remember that Dicer, these guys, Dicer and Drosha, are going to do a two base pair overhang. They're, Dicer and Argonaut are going to directly interact with RISC and hand over those tiny microRNAs. 
That's a very efficient system. When you dump it in like this, just in the cytoplasm, you basically have to put in huge concentrations just so risk even notices it. And we'll take it. But it works. It's used only really effectively in cell culture. Because in an animal system, you, you know, it's just incredibly difficult to get enough in. So now, of course, we need to do work in animals, though. And boy, if you've ever had to order these made, synthetic RNA is extremely expensive. Because it's a different technology than DNA, and it's a very expensive chemistry. So these are very, very expensive, and you can drop $1,000 on one. So um, then, and that one might not work. <laughs> it might not actually get onto risk. And you might have to take, so by, we, we know that if you're going to do this technology, you usually have to pick three target sequences and then try all three and hope that you get one that works. So every time you see a knockdown publication, somebody tried as many as five or six. And at $1,000 a pop, not many people were doing this because they didn't have money. So then they started to learn about this system a little bit. And there was a suspicion that this structure had something to do with it. So they said, okay, well, let, let's, let's make that structure. We can put it on a plasmid, or we can make it synthetically so it self-anneals and try it. And right away, as soon as they made, instead of two separate strands, they made one long one that would self-anneal until it loops. That worked more efficiently. So in fact, that was what put the microRNA people onto the fact that they were looking for this structure. Because we empirically discovered this worked better than that. And then after that, it wasn't the empirical experimental people teaching. After that, all the discoveries, all the really big um, breakthroughs that were made in the technology were made by the people who work on microRNA, actually working this system out. So if you have a short hairpin like this and you add it, it's coming in here. That's further back in the system. Now it has a chance of being bound by Dicer and Argonaut, and then it enters the more efficient pathway. Uh, and now you can make those synthetically, but an improvement was to realize that you could use an RNA Paul 3 promoter, like H6 or U6, and drive that short hairpin being transcribed within the cell. And now you could. Where was it going in? Well, you put a plasmid, its DNA, in with a transfection agent, and that's going to be put into the nucleus. So it came in here, and it went out then by the RAND GTPase, which directly handed it over to Dicer and Abernon. And when this technology came in, the, this was such an improvement that a great number of people were now able to use this knockdown technology because it was very efficient once we could start as far back as here. And the only limitation in this is that primary cells don't transfect well. They don't like the lipid agents. They don't like calcium phosphate. They just refuse to take up plasmid DNA. And if you can't get a cell to take up plasmid DNA, it won't take up RNA either. So none of these were working on primary cells, but that's something we'd like to work on. So that's when they came up with a technology in which they changed this, and it wasn't just in a plasmid. They put it in a virus genome, specifically retroviral genomes, which 
the virus infection takes that sequence into the nucleus, and that's what then it integrates that, and it becomes like a normal gene. So at that point, we were at with the technology where you were actually starting at base point. You had you were putting the short hairpin into the genome, and it behaved just like any microRNA, and the efficiency jumped up another tenfold over that. But we, they did discover that these short hairpins that we engineered ourselves also tended to be degraded more rapidly. So then when they understood microRNAs, they figured out the technology, which is take a real existing microRNA. You're going to use this technology. This is what you want to do. Take a real existing microRNA and just remove the center sequences that would end up in this and replace it with your sequence and a complement to it. And that's the current top-notch technology. Now that's not to say that you don't see people occasionally using this. What this is most used for nowadays is um, even at a thousand dollars a pop, if you're going after a gene that no one's yet knocked down, you will have to try three things and um, to find at least one that works. Well, even at a thousand dollars a pop, three will cost you a, cost you three thousand. But if you put this into the viral vectors, each viral vector will cost you two thousand. So the three thousand may sound like a lot, but if you have to find a new one, it's going to cost you six. <coughs> this this is also changing somewhat because there's a company that Fisher Scientific now sells from. So if you need to do it, my recommendation is go to Open Biosystems. Uh, through Fisher Biotech. And what they're going to do is hedge their bets on this. They have a guarantee. You pay for a small amount of three viral vectors to your gene. And if none of those three work, they guarantee they'll keep sending you different target sequences for your gene until, send you virus with different target sequences until it works. And that's going to cost you $1,700. That's a bargain. So if you need to do it, I recommend Open Biosystems at Fisher. Um, that competition has caused Sigma, which has a uh, competing system, to come down in their price and have a good guarantee as well. So now the Sigma Mission microRNA system is also a good thing for you to do. And that's why you see less and less of papers that are actually using siRNA to explore. But older papers really use it. Uh, yes, in this system, but <laughs> nobody uses this anymore uh, because the, the getting it in enough cells by transfection has, is such an issue, and the viral vectors work so much better. That's what I did in undergrad. Was that the, the siRNA? SHRNA. SHRNA. Yeah, and. This is a technology that has evolved incredibly over the last four years. So four years ago when I taught this, I didn't really push the viral vectors because you, you had to know someone who'd make them for you. But now they're commercially available and for a really good price. They used to also be outrageous. I had to make Linky Viral SHRNA class as well. I just thought like the Linky Virus from someone for free, like their plasma already they had made the genome. Yes. yes. 
And so once they do that, then you can just replace it with whichever sequences you're interested in. So basically it's free. After you pay for the primary. They very cleverly, the lentiviral genomes that have these microRNAs in them, they put restriction sites right where you need to add or subtract. Very clever design. Uh, and did you use microRNA 30? You might not have realized I don't you didn't know about microRNAs then. Yeah. So the most popular one that you'll see in the lentiviral vectors in the microRNA technology is microRNA 30. And it's as simple as this. It's the longest lived microRNA that we know. So if you want to do this technology and you want to have a really good knockdown, you want to have a long lived microRNA that's the basis. And the lifespan of the microRNA has something to do with the identity of the sequence in the loop. So really, by the time you reach this stage, the only thing left from the real microRNA is that loop when you're using knockdown technology. But that loop is very important for determining how well it works. Okay, microRNA technology, the knockdown technology. Any questions on that? Is this sort of helping you to get a grasp on how this works? Okay, great. We stumbled on a natural system. We were even taking advantage of it before we even knew it existed. But we, once we knew it existed and worked it out, we really figured out how to use it. And current systems are excellent. Okay, so here is a, um, here's a, a map. So this is a plasmid map, but this would typically be on a virus genome. And the virus genomes and, and this are also using the microRNA Pol2. I'm sorry, the RNA polymerase Pol2, so it's a messenger RNA. Now that gets to the point that this technology was helped out by an understanding of this system, which is that microRNAs are hosted on host genes, right? And their messenger RNA transcripts, do they have a poly A tail? Their primary transcript? That was in the cell study. transcript of a microRNA have a poly A tail? Yes. Yes, it does. Now, if you look at the system up here, here is that primary transcript. They're not showing the poly tail per se, but a lot of microRNAs exist in the intron of another gene, of its host gene. And many of them are host genes where the protein's going to be made. The host gene's protein will also be made in addition to the microRNA. Does a messenger RNA that lacks a poly A tail go efficiently to spliceosomes? I think when we learned about swiping some genes add a poly tail first and then spliceosomes splice first and add a poly tail so you don't <coughs> have a poly tail. 
dumb. That's right. That's right. So the ability to go to the spliceosome doesn't explain why this is. Um, our best explanation is that this form of, of, our best understanding is this form of regulation needs to be tied to messenger RNA transcription. So that's why microRNAs are under the polymerase that makes messenger RNA. So you realize, I, I told you we used an artificial system here, an H6, or a U6, uh, that should be H2, sorry, H2 or U6, which is a Paul 3 Well, what does Paul 3 usually transcribe? Yeah, transfer RNAs. Ribosomal RNAs. RNAs that don't get poly tails. RNAs that aren't messages. So this was an artificial system, and part of the reason it doesn't work well is because this is not a message. There is something about having it being expressed from a mess the messenger RNA promoter, which is the Paul 2 promoter that makes the system work better. And we don't understand why that is. So that's another thing that's under investigation. Okay, so that's going in there. That's the most efficient system. Now, let's look at a case of using a knockdown microRNA as an investigational tool. So this is a paper, and you know, it was just a very good paper, but it was a rare paper where they wanted to look at this histone acetyltransferase protein, PCAP. So I'm only going to call it PCAP after that. This has no significance to our discussion in particular, except that it happened to be the gene that these folks were working on. Now, they knew that PCAP was naturally inhibited by two microRNAs. So this gene is translationally regulated by natural microRNAs. At least two, and maybe more. They just haven't discovered them yet. So these two. And they wanted to compare the natural inhibition by these microRNAs to inhibition by the mere tech knockdown technology. And now they're going to call, now in this, this data, the microRNAs will keep their name, and they'll call the, the engineered silencing RNAs PCAP and PCAP3 prime. This indicating that the target is within the coding sequence, and this indicating that that target is in the 3 prime untranslated region. Okay, so they knew that, um, they knew the positions of the targets of these natural ones, and you can see that little blip. What does that little blip mean? And that little blip right there, where they're talking about the, the microRNAs? Natural microRNAs, do most of them match perfectly? No. So when you see that kind of symbolism, they're, they're denoting the unbased paired segment, the mismatch. All right, so now they're going to look at the natural microRNA reducing the protein, but not the message. And this is a key. So remember, 
That's why we're emphasizing so much that if it's not a perfect match, if there's a mismatch, then risk simply holds on to the message. Well, risk also protects it from being degraded if it holds on to it. So in natural microRNA, most of the time, the message is level stays the same, and there's no difference. But the protein is less. So there's the natural microRNAs, and this is a Western blot using anti-PCAP. And so here is endogenous. They, they're just using this as a loading control, the total protein in the Kamasi. And here's the endogenous protein right, of PCAP. Do both those microRNAs repress translation? How would you judge? Sigma or one of the other companies. It's just 
a random one which they have checked as much as they possibly can does not match any known gene. And it's allowed to use that. All right, so that's, that's what happens with the natural one. So interestingly, only one of the two completely represses it. Now, I like this paper because it shows you something that I could tell you and I don't think you'd ever understand. These are naturally occurring. They're on different host genes. So the cell can control and fine tune the expression level of PCAP depending on which of the host genes of the natural microRNA is being expressed. If the cell expresses the host gene that 20A is on, then it almost completely suppresses PCAP. The cell has almost no PCAP. But under conditions where the cell wants to, needs to reduce PCAP, but not completely eliminate it, then the gene that hosts 17.5P is turned on. Individual genes that are regulated by microRNA often have different microRNAs, some of which suppress it completely, and some of which simply bring it down about 50% and they're hosted on different genes. The cell then regulates by the host gene that is expressed. Yes? So in this experiment, they treated the cells with mRNAs that they had harvested, right? No. Um, oh, sorry, yes, yes, in this one they did. <laughs> I just stopped, thank you. Yes, they, knew, they knew the sequence of this. They knew the sequence of that, and they made the uh, they made those onto the mirror technology. They put them on lentibar vectors and, and infected the cells. So how did they control for the cells' natural expression of those miRNAs as separate from the mRNAs that they are given? That's a good question. So what they're doing is they're using a cell line in which there's normally no need to regulate this gene. So the natural contribution of the, in the real authentic genes of these did not come into play. And the only thing that was coming into play was constant expression of their construct, which would express either 75P or 20F. Yes. And so that is something that people do. The human 293, human embryonic kidney cell line 293 is one of the favorite ones for this. Uh, because it actually, it's an epithelial cell line that's very much the same, the same, the same. And as long as you grow it in regular media with some fetal calf serum, it doesn't need to turn off and on all these regulations. So you have essentially zero background. And that's important in these kinds of studies. Okay, so what happened with the RNA though? Now they do look at RNA with RT-PCR. You almost never see a northern anymore because RT-PCR is so much easier. There's how much message there normally is for PCAP. So did the microRNAs affect the message? Were they supposed to? Why not? They inhibit translation. They inhibit translation but don't cause message to be degraded. 
right, this is very repetitive, I know, but it's not a, it's a new concept, and it's important that you come down, you get that bottom line. So microRNAs repress the protein without destroying the message. Now here's the knockdown technology with these artificial silencing RNAs, and they have a perfect match. So what do they do to the protein? Knock it down. They hurt. Now, but I told you earlier that people often have to try as many as five to get something that works. Boy, that's a mystery to us. Shouldn't every one of them work? Somehow, Dicer and Risk are picky. And we just, we don't know how picky they are and why they do it the way they do. Um, but, Personally, here's what I think. Messenger RNA is secondary structure. When you put these artificial ones, and this is what I think, not what I have proof for or anyone's looked at. You put these artificial ones in there, and you don't have knowledge of the secondary structure of the RNA, if you make your target something that's naturally base paired to another part of that same message, it's not free or risk to try and base pair it. I think that's actually a big part of it. We just don't know that, we don't have any, um, we don't have good methods to figure out the structure of a large RNA. You can do the crystal structure, something that's up to 300 nucleotides, but there's almost all messages much longer than that. Once it's over 300, you can't get RNA structure. You can't get crystal structure in RNA, on an RNA molecule. So we just don't have structure. And I think it's all about you go blindly in trying to find a place that is not base paired naturally in the RNA. Uh, so now these did work, or they couldn't publish them, right? And what happens in the RNA? It's degraded. Because it's a perfect match, and that signals for risk to degrade. Because of the way this technology works, oh, look, sorry. When you're studying microRNA, you must look both at the RNA expression and the protein expression. And when you use for the first time the knockdown technology, you must look, it's called validation. You must validate that the protein is down and validate that the message is gone. But thereafter, when you use it in future papers, you only have to show that the protein's gone. So what people like to do is go in the literature and hope that someone else had to knock down their gene and has a validated <laughs> microRNA. And then, then you write to them and say, please send me your lentivirus genome, <laughs> or tell me where you bought it. All right. So, they often occur in, occur in clusters and in non-coding genes. So remember, that was part of the cell study. They get processed. So can we take advantage of it? And this is the lentiviruses. And so I just want to show you how effective the lentiviruses are. But more than anything else, I want to have you have another shot at understanding the data from uh, microRNA. So, this is a study of protein kinase A. 
Now, protein kinase A was known at the time of this study, alpha chain, a beta chain. And the alpha beta dimer was the kinase. Alright? They're made on two different messenger RNAs. And so these guys started to validate these uh, SHRNAs. And the original point of their study was, well, we'll just knock out alpha or beta. We'll try one each, and whichever one works, we'll work with that one. Because if we knock out one of the subunits, the enzyme activity is gone. Right? And so they did that. And you can see here, the gray bar is the uh, silencing RNA to the alpha, to, sorry, to the beta subunit, and here's the silencing RNA to the alpha subunit. Did I get that wrong? Uh, the colors represent the RNAs, the... Uh, yes, yes, and this is RNA level. So you can see that when you have the, uh, that, that when you're expressing the shRNA that, sorry, knocks down alpha, it doesn't affect beta, sorry. And when you express the one that knocks down beta, it doesn't, it doesn't affect the expression of alpha message, but it does reduce beta. And now they're actually looking at a Western blot. So here's the validation with RNA. They're not showing the RT-PCR. They're just showing the quantitation of the intensity of the RT-PCR bands. Now they're showing the Western blot and the, the silencing RNA to the alpha subunit has knocked that down. Not completely gone, is it? But this was an opportunity for me to point out to you that for publication and for scientific purposes, the, the field is in agreement that if the protein is 80% reduced and there is a clear phenotype, it's acceptable for publication. 80% reduced. So you only have 20% of the normal levels, and there's a clear phenotype, then you can publish. So that was acceptable. 50%, and you're lucky if you can get it in a journal with an impact factor of one. So it's sort of, and why 80%, not 75? <laughs> I, I don't know. Because it was the it was the field of knockdown technology that decided it. And while I teach it and I have used it, I was not one of the ones developing it. So uh, now you can see that when you knock down alpha, you still have the same levels of beta. Now there's the uh, there's the oh, sorry, okay, I gotta read that again. Uh, there's the the beta one. And you know, um, it did, this was what surprised me, right? That was it. They're, they're knocking down beta here, and they didn't affect the alpha RNA, but there is less protein, and it's substantially less. So that was a surprise to them. And then, but they do, it's almost completely knocked down beta. There's a very faint band there, but not much. So that told people for the first time that the stability of the alpha subunit depends on being able to dimerize with the beta subunit. And if beta's not there, that protein is less stable. So they learned a lot of things from this study. But now, so that led them to say, well, let's do both of them together and son of a gun. Combine those two and what happened? Alone, 
that alpha silencing RNA was unable to get rid of all of it. But when beta was knocked down, it's completely gone. And they did that because they noticed that without beta, this was less stable. So they figured if we put both, then it will. And it turned out to be a really lucky break for them. Because the reason they wanted to silence this kinase was they were after bigger game. They were after finding the kinase that was responsible for phosphorylating a protein called BAS. And they thought it was protein kinase A, but they had to prove it. Well, one way to do it is to knock down protein kinase A, no activity, and then stimulate the cells to induce phosphorylation of BAS. You stimulate the cyclic A and P, and the cells they were using will phosphorylate fast, and it starts a signaling cascade. So now they just wanted to knock it down, and if once they knocked it down, fast was no longer phosphorylated, then that was proof that it was protein kinase A that did it. So here's their look now, and this is the, these are blots that are looking for phosphovast. So you know you can make antibody that only recognizes the phosphorylated form of a protein. So they had that. And here's their, here is just the, the uh, in this case, they're not using scrambled, they're using one to luciferase. Well, these cells don't have a luciferase gene in them, so that's a you know, control uh, silencing RNA. And in untreated cells, VAS was not going to be phosphorylated, but if you use either one of these cyclic A and P analogs, then you do get phosphorylation of VAS. So now, what happens? If you knock down individually just the alpha or just the beta, well, of course, there's never going to be phosphorylation here. But just alpha alone or just beta alone, and you still got phosphorylation of VAS. What? Because when you knock these down, you just have one or the other. You don't have the alpha-beta dimer. But when you have just alpha, which would be here, when they have just alpha, are just beta, they still got kinase activity. And from this paper, for the first time, they learned that alpha will dimerize and beta will dimerize with itself, and that's an active kinase. They never knew that was the case. So then, what they were really after, though, was that in the cells they were working with, the alpha and the beta are both expressed, and the kinase that's present is a dimer of the two. So now they silence both of them, and once they silence both of them, the phosphorylation of VAS was down to almost nothing. There's a little bit left though, right? And why do you think that is? does not mean there is absolutely no protein. There's a limit of protection in our systems. It is very low, but that doesn't mean there's no protein. So it could also be that there's residual protein left because this is an enzyme, 
And even a single molecule of it can do a lot of work on a, on a lot of molecules of that. So that's not ground technology. Let's go to NTOR. Uh, NTOR, we have the paper on it as well yesterday too. So I was going to put most of the work today into the microRNA. Um, and then most of what we're going to do now is this is going to be a time where we'll go through some stuff that you need to ask questions if you had trouble with that paper. So by now you should have at least looked at that paper so that you could tell what was what was tough to know about mTOR. Alright, so um, you started out in the cell study with a normal cell and what happens in a normal cell. And I'll just say if you did not do that cell study, you're probably going to get lost now, but I, there's nothing I can do about it. So um, now, we're looking at the tumor cell, in which the receptor tyrosine kinase is a mutant and it's constantly signaling. So, these normal levels are being manipulated because the activated receptor tyrosine kinase is activating RAS, which then phosphorylates CMYK and CMYK unphosphorylated is out in the cytoplasm a non-functional protein. But as soon as it's phosphorylated, that reveals what? What does the phosphorylation of uh, MIG do? It reveals a nuclear localization signal, right. And as soon as it's revealed, this comes into the nucleus. What is MIG? Transcription factor. That's right. And it's a transcription factor that upregulates the genes for EIF4E, EIF4G, and EIF4A, among others. It also increases the translation of the ribosomal RNAs, the transfer RNAs, and other genes of ribosomal proteins. So MIC is interesting because MIC is enhancing that these genes are translated, are transcribed by RNA fall 3 these ribosomal proteins are promoters that are transcribed by RNA Paul 3 sorry, Paul 2 We don't understand. MIC is, in, is a transcription factor able to increase transcription by both of those polymerases. I don't know of another instance of that, and I have been unable to find anyone or any literature who understands how that could happen. But it is the case that if you overexpress MIC, you increase transcription of these. So now this is going to increase all of the components of the translation apparatus. So this is one branch of how a malignant cell can have continuous and unregulated growth. One branch has to be the activation of MIC. And MIC is the single most widely overexpressed oncogene in all of human tumors, in all of mammalian tumors. Most mammalian tumors, no matter what kind they are, are overexpressing MIC. And that means they are very, they've activated this transcription and they have increased translational components. But the other side of the story is to look at what else mTOR does, because you studied in the cell study this, that mTOR is going to phosphorylate the 4E binding proteins. So it's not a single protein, they're a related family. 
And once they're phosphorylated, they will release EIF4E. Now there's free 4E, and that's going to help with initiation. You can have as many ribosomes as you want, but if you can't initiate, you don't have the accessory factors to initiate, it's not going to come to any protein synthesis. So another arm of this is S6K. S6 is a small ribosomal protein. So in the nomenclature for ribosomal proteins, if it's a small subunit, it's a capital S and a number. If it's a large subunit, what is it? Capital L and a number. Right. So this is a kinase specific for that protein. The kinase is not active unless it's phosphorylated, and it's mTOR that sends the signal to have it phosphorylated. The phosphorylated form turns out to make the ribosome more active. So a ribosome, a small ribosomal subunit that has a S6 not phosphorylated is still active. It's just more active if it's got a phosphorylated S6. And since the small subunit is what is participating in initiation, a more active one here means more active initiation. Now, I hope that when you did the cell study, you understood why I emphasized that the rate-limiting factor for cap-dependent translation is the availability of free EIF4E, which is being controlled by mTOR. Hope you understand that. And the rate-limiting factor for cap-independent, or iris, is the availability of EIF4G. Well, let's fine-tune that. EIF4E has a binding site for 4G. It attracts 4G to 5' caps to start initiation and get the ribosomes. The affinity for EIF4G, for EIF4E, is greater than its affinity for an iris. So if you want the iris to be able to you have to have large amounts of free EIF4G. If you have small amounts, then it's all going to be here on the cap. So the key to this net not only increasing the translational apparatus, it increases EIF4G. Increases it, to transcribes it to the levels at which it's, there's now enough to have on cap-dependent and on cap-independent initiation, then both types of initiation can be increased. All right, these are just models of how this might happen. And, uh, you know, nobody really knows. They're trying to work this out. And this, in this particular one, this guy believes that um, actually this is SK6 binding to EIF. But that's not proven, and I don't think that's right. So this is shown to you to beware. I have never seen more errors or more, um, what do we call it? Uh, people putting things in diagrams as though it were real and proven, when in fact it's only their idea. Assumptions, yes, presumptions. Sorry, assumptions and presumptions that in M4 diagrams. So beware of M4 diagrams. And 
I chose a, a paper, but see, lots of them leave things out. You should know that uh, mTOR is in two complexes. One complex is in Raptor, the other was with Richter. And uh, when it's with Raptor, that's the one that we're going to be dealing with. That's the one that signals to regulate translation. The Richter complex, which is in port 2, is regulating other things. And there are two of them, and they are distinguished by Raptor versus Richter, but it isn't, you know, it's a big complex. There are other things there. And that's going to regulate protein translation in the So I just want to point out to you here, here are, you, your paper is going to deal with these um, inhibitors of mTOR. And that's, Everolimus is a clinical name for rapamycin. So, you know, often things don't have the pharmaceuticals, they don't have the same name that we would call them. So actually, Everolimus is nothing but rapamycin. And to understand the paper, they call rapamycin an allosteric inhibitor. And then they also use the direct inhibitor, which is their drug. All right? Well, the, what they're really talking about is though almost every diagram you see will show rapamycin acting directly on mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. In fact, when we discovered the mechanism, there's an intermediary to protein here. It's actually binding, the drug itself, the, the antibiotic itself binds another protein. And that protein then starts a cascade that inactivates mTOR. So while mTOR is, we know it is the target, it's not the direct target of rapamycin. And so they called it an allosteric inhibitor. I might, I would use another name, but uh, that's what's going on. And in the paper, the allosteric inhibitor doesn't inhibit completely all of this activity, right? But the direct inhibitor that inhibits the ATP site in mTOR actually does other things at broader effects. And that's because that allosteric inhibitor is not acting directly on mTOR. So I hope that little extra piece of information will help you as you uh, do that paper. Okay, all these different maps. You know, if you saw a map, so here's the bottom line. If you saw a map of an mTOR, you'd be able to spot where mTOR is. And based on the information that we have, if they did something wrong, oops, sorry, <laughs> that was supposed to go on, um, like this one, huh, so good, look at that. There's something wrong with this, and I know it's complex, but for one thing, look what they did. They labeled that mTOR. But mTORC is the complex with Raptor. That's incorrect. That's just mTORC. Subtle mistakes all over the place with these things. And here's another mistake. It's ambiguous. What does that dashed line mean? mTORC directly acts on 4-EB by phosphorylating it. 
And here's a to show you where mTOR actually can extend to. It turns out that immunologists now realize they have to deal with mTOR because during activation of a T cell, where the T cell receptor is engaged, it sets in place the transcription of IL-2, and IL-2 acts on the same T cell by binding its receptor. CD, that's all, it's the IL-2 receptor, is also called CD25. That's the receptor tyrosine kinase for this cell. And so once a T cell engages its antigen and recognizes a target that it should be acting against, it's going to activate transcription of IL-2. IL-2 activates the receptor tyrosine kinase, which in turn activates mTOR and CNIC through RAS. They're not showing CNIC here directly. Uh, and then you activate translation, and this T cell is going to start dividing. It's going to start proliferating. But the key to its T cell proliferation after stimulation is the mTOR pathway. So everywhere, mTOR is everywhere. Tumor cells, immunology. <coughs> Any questions? You did understand that you can bring on your computer or as a hard copy your answers that you worked out to those questions. I actually encourage you to because we don't have much time. So uh, you know, you're going to need to pop up with those answers. Right, I'll see you tomorrow at 1. That's in this classroom, right? Yes, it's in this classroom.